friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess and TCA colleague Maureen Ferguson. We're happy to welcome Dr. Brad Wilcox to the show. He is an old stalwart of our shows. He heads the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. But first, we are happy to have back with us an old friend of the show, Edward Penton. He's Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Register. And Edward helps us because here in the United States, we tend to be uh, a little myopic and always staring at our belly button and thinking about what's going on in the U.S., but there's a big, wide world out there, a big, wide Catholic world. So, um, Edward, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you again, Gracie. You know, there really is so much going on. For instance, some of our listeners may not know, and I frankly have not been following it very closely, there is a synod on synodality that was launched this week at the Vatican. Tell us what what a synod on synodality is and why we should be paying attention. Well, this is uh, something that Pope Francis is very keen to to, uh, implement, and it's really to look at uh, the basically get each each the first phase so there's three phases to this and the first phase is really to get each of the local churches to to really start listening to what the faithful uh, want to see changed in the church and how they feel the church could be better and so it's is the, the first phase is called a diocesan phase so there's going to be from I think from Sunday from the 17th there's going to be um Basically, it begins with liturgies in each diocese, and then it'll become a, a, a very wide sort of consultation with with faithful from um, across the world in the local churches, and then that will be brought together. All of the results will be brought together next year, and uh, this time next year it'll begin a national phase, um, so that each nation national church will have a. Uh, uh, do the same sort of thing, but in a in a more universal sense, and then there'll be a culminating uh, synod in 2023 in October 2023 in the Vatican, where all these issues will be brought together and sort of hammered out. And um, I think the hope is that it'll get a better picture of what's needed in the church and regarding what the needs are of the, of the local faithful and and the church as an institution. In general, so that's basically what what the Pope has planned. So this, um, Edward, this reminds me yeah. of the Synod on the Family. That's the way the Family Synod was organized. There was a listening time with all the different parts of the World Church, paying attention and and giving their their feedback, and then a collection of all the bishops got together, and then we we found the results. But yes. what? But that was a very the, the the Synod on the Family was on the family, something that we all understand and we all have ideas about, and we we feel that we understand the needs of the family. We all live in families. Um, mm. But what about synodality? What is synodality exactly? And what does the church want to hear from us as far as synodality? Well, I think the synodality, as I say, it's, a, it's about creating what Pope Francis says is a, is a more listening church. But there are still sort of uh, question marks about what exactly that means. And you get sort of conflicting arguments, whether it's the sort of difference between synodality and collegiality. Collegiality was, of course, very much a, a concept that was that was uh, emphasized at the Second Vatican Council, which was to make the hierarchy more collegial, but also to help bring a sort of, uh, to give people more say within the church who perhaps hadn't been heard before. And this is really what's being held down with synodality too. It's really to try to, I think, make the church in a sense a little more like a democracy and to try to make the structure of the church less sort of top-down. But as Pope Francis once said at a very important um, uh, speech on, on synods, Back in 2015, I believe, which was, I think, the, or 2016, which was the, 
the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Synod of Bishops by Paul VI, he said he really wanted to what we what he called an inverted pyramid, which is very much um, the church guided by the grassroots from the from the ground up rather than from the top down. And so I think that's the sort of direction he wants the church to head. And I think he's he's wanting this synod, this particular synod, to do that and to be a way to move that forward. But you know, it is controversial. There are many questions about it, um, many of which I asked Cardinal Grech in an interview I did with him uh, last week about this and, you know, questions about whether it's sort of Protestantizing the Church, as some believe, or it's it's basically a Vatican III, a Third Vatican Council, but without naming it as such, and then whether, you know, it's sort of trying to implement sort of a revolutionary element into the Church, which which you know hasn't hasn't been asked for by many laity, and you know wonders whether there's a sort of agenda, hidden agenda behind it. Now, of course, he denied all of that, and 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 said basically what I've said just just now about what synodality is. But a big question about this this synod is, you know, they're going to be talking to a lot of uncatechized faithful, and the question is, you know, is the census fidei, as as Cardinal Grech says, does it include? Of such people and such faithful or does it include those who are catechized because it's a very different view you're going to get from the faithful who are uncatechized than those who are and of course if for those who aren't sort of well versed in church teaching it's going to be quite a different sort of outcome if you're going to listen more to them than those who are catechized who tend to be the minority now because as people often say you know the the catechesis in the church for the past 50 years has not been optimal by any means so there are lots of uncatechized perhaps the majority well clearly the majority of of the catholics in the world are not properly catechized so so this is a real question mark about the whole process and just how it's going to be fulfilled because of that it does seem to have an air of putting the cart before the horse and having the cart uh, decide where the horses ought to go but there is a lack of of catechesis everywhere and, and 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 I think more than that a lack of, of confidence on the part of, of church uh, of the clergy uh, a lack of confidence in their ability to transmit the eternal truths of our faith mm. and also mm. a lack of confidence that people will receive them as what they are which is life-saving and and joyful news from God as to yes. as to our condition and and our purpose in life um, so I, I do think it does sound a little scary especially when to me when I hear the the word synod, I often think of the German synod, <laughs> which mm. which is a, a, a troubling, you know, it's very troubling to think of, of a whole group of, of German bishops sort of taking their own way, going off in a different direction or, or trying to pull the church in a direction which the church has never walked. What do you think about yes. uh, that kind of synodality? Well, it's interesting because I was in touch with Cardinal Walter Casper about this. Now, Cardinal Casper is interesting because he's very much on the sort of liberal wing of the church who, who who's very favorable to this sort of process because he believes it's a way to, to uh, you know, introduce these more liberal elements into the church, which wouldn't have been accepted otherwise. And so he's a very much a proponent of this, but he is a, a leading opponent or at least has great concerns about the German, German synodal path, which he says is a very different a different process. I mean, he says, and I quote, he says, it's an attempt to realize a certain more or less controversial agenda of church reform. And the synodal assembly has a vote, but it's, um, it's very much, uh, you know, run by votes. But, um, but it, it says, but he says, you know, votes with a universal impact must be sent to the Holy See. But the Pope's synodal process, he says, doesn't have such a, a pre-given agenda of reform, which the German synodal path does. So when the Germans, when the Germans um, sit down in synod, they have mm. uh, they have uh, an agenda before them that's that's preset, and they and then they vote on certain things. Is that how that works? Exactly. Well, they, exactly. This is the leading um, criticism of the German synodal path: is that it's basically got a pre. It's got a, a, a preset agenda, which is using the sexual abuse crisis as a means to push through this agenda. And it's a sort of political ecclesiastical agenda, very much sort of secular. And this is the sort of reform that they're wanting. Now, Cardinal Casper says that the Pope's synodal process is not primarily reform-oriented, but it's a spiritual process. And he invites the local churches within the universal church uh, to pray and listen to the gospel, listen in a brotherly way, as he says, to uh, each other and to find out what the Spirit is telling the church. Hmm. Now, of course, it could be just um, 
playing with words in a sense, because you could argue that, you know, the Holy Spirit could be saying, well, you know, we need the same sort of reforms that they're doing in the German church. And who's to know whether that's correct or not? I mean, that's when well, you get the majority of the... people voting in that, that's that's what they might say but, and uh, but terrifyingly terrifyingly yeah. in the german in the german synod they voted on same-sex blessings being allowed exactly. in church or being done at church yeah. and and they got enough votes to pass that right right you see so, and this is the sort of agenda that they're trying to push through anyway um mm -hmm. that's not going to happen i'm pretty sure that won't happen in this in this process but at the same time much like the previous synods uh there'll be i think Put certain uh, reforms placed put through, but in a in a more sort of oblique way, and, um, and you mean sort of in a subtle, in a subtle, hard to parse out kind of way that that we saw in some other in the results I, I of other synods. Yes, well, like very much like uh, Amoris Laetitia, which was the document that came out of the family synod. You had, of course, the famous footnote, which um, basically allowed. Uh, you know, certain uh, people who are divorced and remarried who could receive Holy Communion. And it kind of gave that a sort of green light depending on the circumstances. Um, and so you got the the um, the same sort of possible, um, same sort of possible danger accruing in, in, this, in this synod that's to come. So we'll have to see. But I think... Um, there are certainly dangers with this whole process. But the Pope, you know, he says, well, you know, we've got to trust the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will guide the church. And so there's nothing really to fear. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Edward Penton. He's the Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Register and an expert on all things Vatican. We're talking about the synod on synodality. You know, you mentioned, uh, you said the word earlier, the Protestant Protestantization, if I'm saying that properly, mm. uh, yes. and there is a there is this there. You know, you speak to me about about the synod and synodality and people listening and taking their own paths and you know it does sound Protestant to me. The idea that that the church could become this democratic grassroots organization, in mm -hmm. which case it's very it's dangerous to me to think. Uh, in that way, because uh, we could break down into a thousand different denominations. I mean, how has the church stayed a single church, you know, for 2,000 years? Um, right. I mean, it's interesting if you talk to, uh, and I, I am a former Anglican, and but if you talk to ang former Anglicans, particularly in the church, they will say, we had these these sort of this sort of process in the Anglican church, and it was an absolute disaster. I mean, you had all sorts of um you know ideas put across that actually became sort of mainstream and then you had then you had women priests you had uh, same-sex blessings and all kinds of things and i think there's a fear that that's sort of being replicated in the catholic church but of course the catholic church is different in that it, it is a divine and human institution and the argument is that you know that, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it and that the, it will not be led into error and so there is nothing really to fear and i think this is perhaps the pope's view that you have to be as he, as he says with with peter and under peter you have to trust that what he is doing is is in conformity with the gospel and with the holy spirit and and that everything is going to be okay and so i think there is that difference but at the same time you know the critics will say, and and you know they 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 have a point that it it does bring certain confusion, and all this sort of threshing out of of ideas can be very confusing to people, um, and especially the media will grab on to any sort of um, the mainstream media will grab on to any kind of indication that the church is perhaps um, you know succumbing to more secular values, and and that can always be. These these sort of issues can always be raised during a synod, and so that sort of gives fodder to the to the mainstream media that the church is sort of changing in that way. And it's very sad, Edward, because here on the ground uh, of of the church, um, as what I'm experiencing out in the world is the church is becoming more and more of a it's being seen as a refuge from uh, you know the dangerous ideologies that are part of the secular culture, and mm -hmm. people you know are wishing that they could afford to send their kids to parochial school or or you know doing everything they can to, to send their kids to, to Catholic school and protect them from these ideologies which are being um, they're just being diffused like poison into every part of our, mm -hmm. our, our, our wider culture 
And and so it is somewhat scary then to think that the church wants to sort of open itself to to this kind of thing and and see what we what we pick and choose from it. It seems to me yes. a terrible uh, a terrible plan. Well, I think one also has to distinguish between the church, of course, which is incorruptible and, and cannot be led into error, and and the leaders within it who, unfortunately, can. And I think, <laughs> I think there's there's a difference there, and one has to, I think, uh, cling to the fact that the sacraments are always the same and they're incorruptible, and that the church never really changes in that respect. Well, and, and that's how a, that's how we know it's yeah. divine, right? Because we haven't exactly. been a, we, humans yeah. have not been able to destroy it. <laughs> exactly, and no matter how hard yes. they've tried. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Especially the leaders, yeah, yes. How do you see, Edward, how do you see the, the terrible and sad, I don't even want to talk about it, frankly, but the, the, the terrible, the clerical abuse sex scandals that have rocked our world for so long and they keep rocking our world. Um, how do you see all of that uh, affecting the church and, and this, uh, this idea of synodality and, and grassroots Catholicism? Well, I think, it, I think it does play a role in this. And of course, it's, it's caused... Um, uh, a lot of the impetus behind these kind of, of these kind of issues. We've had, of course, the Vatican summit on sexual abuse. Uh, I think it was 2019, and you know this this is all sort of pushing towards a greater listening of those who are victims, and that's all well and good. But I think there's a danger, or at least there's talk of, of dangers of this, that it can lead to you know lis- listening perhaps to, to those who do feel sort of uh, they have gripes against the church and they have you know grievances rather, and they and those get listened to perhaps rather too much, and then you've got decisions taken uh, which aren't really in the best interest of the church as a whole, and the, you know sort of. Um, hard cases make bad law and i think you can get that in this sort of this sort of situation so so i think there's a danger there and you know people will say well the, you know the, the the whole sexual abuse crisis is really satan's work and he's um, certainly the, the the crimes are but it's being used by him to to really try to destroy the church and that's that is something i think um i think you know one has to be wary of and now, of course, the church uh, is is uh, coming where all of us are coming at all of this at the end of this long COVID nightmare we've all been living through and all the different ways it has affected us. It's separated us. It's it's caused a lot of conflict. Even at the Vatican, we're seeing conflict um, over things like vaccine mandates. What's your are you in Italy yes. right now? Yes, I am. I'm in Rome. Yes. And yes. how are things? How are things there? And I know that uh, maybe some of our listeners have heard that some of the Swiss Guard have have walked away due to vaccine mandates. Is that something that's talked about around the Vatican? Well, it is, but it's interesting to see how little that story, which is a which is a pretty big story, really, uh, has been ignored, whether by the mainstream press or even even Catholic media. I mean, we we put it in the register, but there are very few that really um, saw this as a major story. But it, it's really quite interesting how. You know, you have, um, contrary to, to the note that was put out by the Congregation for the Adoption of the Faith last December, which said that vaccines should always be voluntary, they they, they shouldn't be mandatory. Um, and yet you had the Swiss Guard being forced to take the vaccine. They couldn't just have the green pass, which is this, um, you know, you can have tests instead of taking the vaccine. They had to have the vaccine. And and so you had these three Swiss Guard who, who were fired because of that, and three others were suspended. Um because they wouldn't take it, and um, and despite you know the, all the 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 ethical problems behind it, the fact that they've all been either tested or produced using um, aborted fetal stem cells, and 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 then other issues, of course, other concerns about their effectiveness and their safety, and serious concerns, and I think that's those issues are kind of cast aside, and really, it's led by by the Pope, the, the fact that the Pope has has been very strong on this and has said it's a moral duty to take the vaccine and he's really been very very uh, strong on this and very uh, adamant that 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 the vaccine be taken and so it's really interesting that this is this has happened in the vatican and i think um also wider of field in in italy as a whole it's i think italy is one of the most restrictive uh, when it comes to the vaccine and one of the most uh, sort of, uh, as I say, yeah, they really want the vaccine to be taken, and they're trying to get the numbers up as much as they can. And um, are people that, are people in Italy fighting back, as we have seen in other countries? Uh, yes, we had we had quite serious riots here on Sunday, Saturday, oh. Saturday evening, where you had um, 
lots of uh, well quite a large number of, of of protesters in the center of Rome and they had to use water cannon and tear gas to try to calm them down but it was um, but they were I think when you look at the videos it was kind of the aggression seemed to be caused mostly by by the authorities not by those who are protesting so it's it's um, so it's people are very concerned of course on the 15th of October a new restriction comes in in Italy where every employer has to have a green pass that doesn't mean they have to be vaccinated but they have to either get the vaccine or have a test every 72 hours so so the restrictions are really quite heavy and uh, and I think a lot of people are starting to wonder why is it these restrictions are so heavy if the vaccine is so effective and if there is the pandemic really is so serious why is there this pressure to get the vaccine and I think that answers the answer to that question I don't think many people has, has been answered well I think it's uh, to some extent in every country everyone's feeling very insecure about what the what mm. the people in charge know and how are they using their knowledge even yes. from a scientific perspective things are it's it's very hard to to know what to what to believe and and how to move forward and mm-hmm. you know also it, very interesting also at the Vatican and um I wanted to ask you about this. The The Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences had an event um, recently, and they had some pro-abortion politicians there. They had socialist economists. Mm. Um, some of the topics uh, that they discussed were universal basic income, green politics, zero COVID. What? Why was this going on at the Vatican? What? What? What was? What, were the, what was the Vatican trying to do here? Well, this is a, a bit of a pattern of ongoing um, events that have been held, particularly at the Pontifical Academy for Social Sciences, um, where they've they've tend to have had uh, speakers who are of this background. They're not um, they're not necessarily Catholic. They certainly have uncatholic views, particularly on key issues, key moral issues like abortion, um, and they're brought in really just to discuss. Uh, very much a sort of leftist uh, political sort of uh, approach to, to world issues, and some would say a sort of globalist approach. And this is this is very much in play at this conference last week, which um, which brought together, uh, as I say, or as you said, the, these very much socialist economists and pro-abortion politicians. And one of the key issues they were proposing was universal basic income, which is essentially just. Uh, free money to to give to people um uh, and it's something that pope francis is sympathetic to he called it an unconditional lump sum payment to all citizens which could be paid through the tax system so it's a sort of uh free welfare if you like for everybody and it sounds um, it sounds like a disincentive to work to me well exactly this is this is the criticism of it Uh, but it's being pushed by among others the world economic forum who are very much pushing this great reset project that many listeners will probably know about and also being pushed by the un and so it's again it's very much the vatican coming in to sync with these sort of global intergovernmental initiatives which seem to be run by an elite, by a sort of globalist elite who want sort of big government and a sort of one world government, some would say. And that's um, the Vatican is sort of going full, full square along with it. Wow, that's a little, um, <laughs> that's a little scary. And yes. it's interesting, and it always is the elite, right? Because it seems to me very, um, very obvious that that kind of thing would, would tend to, to, to limit human flourishing and, and limit that limit mostly the lives of the people who you know at the bottom scale not at the top of the of the economic scale yes and it's this is what's a mystery because you know the free market does tend to help the poor it brings everybody up um rather than leveling down whereas this sort of vision i think critics will say well it, it really levels down like much like socialism Mm-hmm. It's just a sort of another form of socialism. So how is that going to help the poor? And so it's a mystery why, when the Pope is so keen on helping the poor, that um, that he'll 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 favour these kinds of approaches. Um, and this whole idea of wealth creation and 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 that people need to be free to create wealth and entrepreneurship and so forth is not is not really considered, and it's not given any kind of any kind of emphasis at all. So. It's it's a mystery. I, it's um, it's. I mean, some some people have theories, of course, why this is so. But it's um, 
I was hoping I was hoping when when Pope Francis came to the United States he would get a better a better feel for for capitalism than what he might have seen in Argentina where corruption is yes. so intense yes I know it's 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 it's, it's a strange thing that he didn't but I mean obviously there are problems with it, capitalism as well but um, it seems like that's that's sort of thrown out the window in favor of this more sort of big government sort of statist uh, approach which um, which still favors the free market in a sense but it's a sort of Chinese model which I think mm -hmm. is more the, the sort of model that they're favoring more, which is um, another concern given the problems with China. <laughs> Now we've talked, Edward. We've talked. We're almost out of time, and we've talked about all, sort of a sad, sort of sad and worrisome things. But I want to ask you about something happy. Cardinal Burke getting better from COVID. Yes. Uh, well, I haven't uh, uh, heard much lately, but I, I understand that he's been he's up and about, and he's he's celebrating mass. So I think he's well on the road to recovery, which is which is um, great for those who, who are interested in this and following his his um, his his health at the moment. So yes, he's he's doing well. I think. Well, that's that's fabulous. Lots of us were praying for him. That's really good news yes, that he's better. Yes. Yes, and uh, he hopes, I think, to come back to Rome. Uh, In the, in the next month or so. It's a long sort of convalescence he has. Oh, I'm you, sure. You know, of course, as a doctor, so it's a long... Yeah, well, those lungs have to get back to, to, their normal, to their normal state. It takes a little time. Exactly. Well, yes. Edward, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Consequence. It's, it's, it's always a blessing to have you, and we can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us and your perspective. Um, sure. To our listeners, if you'd like to follow Edward's work and writing, you can visit ncregister.com. Thank you so much, Edward. Thanks, Gracie. My pleasure. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess and TCA colleague, Maureen Ferguson. We're happy to welcome Dr. Brad Wilcox to the show. He is an old stalwart of our shows. He heads the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. You can catch some of his research and writing at the Institute for Family Studies. That's familystudies.org. Welcome to the show, Brad. It's great to be here today. Well, Brad, uh, we wanted to have you on because you did and released a, um, a survey, which we thought was extremely interesting. It's called the American Family Survey. Could you tell our listeners about the survey? So this is a new survey from the uh, Deseret News and BYU, and it's, say it's, it's run by YouGov, and it's an annual survey that's designed to kind of give us a sense of the, the family pulse in America. And so a lot of questions on topics related to family and parenting and, you know, the challenges that people face today um, when it comes to, you know, both getting married, staying married, and raising kids. As you've mentioned, the world's been turned upside down in the last year and a half. So, and we've seen, of course, a lot of suffering within families, but we've also seen a lot of resilience. So can you tell us a little bit about how this survey captured that amidst the disruptions of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, when, when COVID first hit and, and the lockdown started at the beginning, people thought that divorce would spike and that, you know, couples would be in, you know, just a terrible spot. But this survey, both in 2021 and 2020, has found that people are much more likely to report that their sense of commitment and appreciation for their spouse has risen since COVID hit and that, you know, conflicts, although certainly there's, you know, there's a minority of couples reporting, you know, more conflict because of COVID. But, you know, the, the more common response is, you know, more commitment, more appreciation for, for your spouse. Uh, not some kind of devastating effect. And in fact, we kind of 
uh, or look beyond just sort of the the couple relationship quality issues to sort of people's more general reports of sadness, loneliness, and satisfaction with their lives. We're just seeing that married people are doing a lot better, um, you know, right now than, than single Americans. It gives us some sense that like, yeah, I mean, and we all know that marriage can be tough and, and difficult at times. But what we're seeing right now is that on average, Americans who are married are doing better than their, <clears throat> their unmarried uh, counterparts. And in fact, the gap in satisfaction in this survey has been growing from 2015 to the present. That is, there's a kind of premium when it comes to happiness that married people enjoy today that seems to be getting a little bit bigger from year to year. And what do you attribute that to? That people are appreciating well, yeah. the, the joys of marriage more or that marriage itself is <laughs> delivering is, is delivering uh, more, you know, quant- quantitatively um positive things. Well, you know, the, the funny thing, or, or maybe the tragic thing to say right now, to be frank, is that married people's happiness is not increasing. What is decreasing is unmarried people's happiness, right? And so it looks to me like, and you know, I, and I think, you know, about this sort of, I don't think that my wife and I were, were kind of happier in 2020 amidst, you know, COVID. But we had a lot of kids. We were pretty busy. We weren't, we weren't sort of just sort of cooped up. On, on Zoom, you know, 24-7. And so I think what sort of might be happening, in fact, is that people who are not married, people who are single, are more likely to be struggling these days and that the pandemic only kind of made that, that the challenge of being single um, that much greater. So in a world where we're seeing more economic stability, where we're seeing political polarization, where we're seeing a social distrust rising, I think people who are in families are more protected, more buffered against a lot of the stuff that's happening in the broader culture. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you look through the survey, and um, it can be found at AEI.org for our listeners. When you look through the survey, there are some interesting things. For instance, um, people, uh, 57% of people uh, surveyed said that children are better off if they have two married parents, but also... Only 28% of people thought it was morally wrong to have a child outside of marriage. So that's it's, it's interesting, I think, that people are, are seeing the benefits of married parenting, of stable families and, and families built, you know, to last. And at the same time, they don't want to pass judgment on, on people who go ahead and have children outside of marriage. Yeah, I think there is definitely... There's a recognition on the part of plenty of folks that other things being equal, it's great to be raised by two married parents. But at the same time, you know, in a world where it's, you know, where kind of a certain uh, regard for kind of being tolerant or accepting has, you know, become very important, you know, people are reluctant to kind of cast any kind of judgment. For instance, having a child sort of wedlock. Is this what you refer to as the marriage paradox, Brad, when you talk about how upper middle class Americans sort of profess to have no problem with non-marital? childbearing, for example, you know, profess that all kinds of family structure is equal, but yet in their own private lives, embrace that marriage mindset for themselves, for their children, sort of recognizing that there's a formula for success there. Exactly. Yeah, no, you, you put it perfectly. I mean, I think what's striking is we did a, a different survey in California about a, a year and a half ago, and what we found, the Californians who were college educated were more likely to profess their support for family diversity than their less educated uh, fellow uh, citizens in, in California. Um, so that was sort of their public ethic, you know, we're for family diversity. Um, but then we asked them, you know, is your, kind of your plan to have kids in marriage, you know, and then are you stably married? And of course, the college educated Californians were, you know, the most likely to plan on having kids in marriage and to be stably married with their kids. So there's a kind of what I call kind of amoral familism operating here where people have like a public position that's sort of amoral around, around their kind of family issues, but their own lives are often very family centered. Well, I think they're being very practical, right? I mean, you see the practical, the practical results of, of doing things in a certain what you call the success pattern. And you right. see that all so around you. Yeah, right. There's a pragmatism. So these are these are the people you know who are in the health club regularly, you know, who eat well, who watch, you know, who watch their weight, who are on their kids get the homework done, who are very aware that all these things kind of have a long term impact on their health, their financial well being, their longevity, their kids' success, and marriage is just part of that puzzle, you know. Um, and so practically, they're all, <laughs> they're very pro marriage, but kind of politically and publicly, and when it comes to kind of making any noise about like. Like what's happening in the public school, for instance, um, there's just an unwillingness to, you know, support marriage as a public 
institution, and, that, and that's tragic. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson from the Catholic Association, and we're talking to Brad Wilcox. He heads the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. Something else that popped out at me on the survey is that 85% of respondents said that parents should, should set boundaries on media consumption for their children. I've been thinking a lot about media consumption. I've been watching, I mean, reading the Facebook files uh, from the Wall Street Journal, uh, reading those horrible things about TikTok <laughs> that have been exposed, uh, the congressional uh, hearings on the same topic. People seem to be waking up to the dangers of constant internet consumption for their kids. Do you think that this this, this will translate into some kind of action down the road on, on, parental, on the parental side? So I, I, I would say two things. One is that, you know, I think more parents are trying to figure out how they can corral their kids' time on the Internet and the content of the materials their kids are engaging with on the Internet. I mean, that's all to the good. But I think secondly, we have to realize there's kind of a collective action problem here where it would be helpful to have some support from, from Washington on these issues. So, you know, we're not going to censor the Internet, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I think we could give parents more power to control um, things like, you know, their, their router, you know, and things like their family cell phone plans. So there sh- it should be, you know, I think it should be the case, for instance, that, um, you know, these big tech can't uh, do ads on social media for kids. And that would have a big impact on, you know, on their whole business model. I think that parents should have the ability to just press a button and, uh, you know, kind of eliminate uh, porn from their family cell phone network and from their modems, like their DSL service. And I think that, you know, the same thing, especially with the universal you know, kill switch, you can just hit, hit a button on your cell phone that turns off the, all the phones in the family network and, you know, turns off the, the DSL. So I was just kind of just giving parents, you know, easier ways to, to kind of control the technology. Really? Because what parents have the time or the are, are tech savvy enough to figure out these parental controls because our tech savvy kids can quickly find workarounds, of course. I have to keep relearning it. P- periodically, I have to go back into my phone and, 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 under, and re-understand <laughs> how to control the amount of time and the, and the content. It's, it's very complicated. Right. No, that's true. I'm just saying I think that there could be easier ways to, to give some parents some very simple mechanisms that would allow them to do that kind of, I mean, you know, just like you press a button and the whole network goes down from, you know, whatever, it's 10 o'clock at night mm-hmm. until 7 in the morning. And But right now, you have to buy, you know, an additional software platform or you have to, an app, or you have to, you know, as you say, kind of go through your, your uh, iPhone and figure out all these different things. It's just not very... Um, straightforward. And I, I think this is where I would say the government actually could make our jobs easier as parents in controlling this stuff. These are the kinds of things, that, and, and you may disagree with one particular thing that I've said, but I think what we should be exploring are both ways to encourage parents, but also to encourage policymakers, you know, to you know, give us more tools in the sort of <laughs> fight against big tech. What about gaming and boys, Brad? How do, what, how do you see that affecting uh, young men. I think gaming is, is, I think for girls, it's social media. For, for boys, it's gaming. And, you know, I think, uh, again, the challenge is to kind of, you know, give your your boys, you know, say one hour on an evening and two hours on a weekend or some, some kind of norm where you're limiting time. And the challenge, too, is to find other teenage boys and other families that would, like, be interested in kind of doing things besides gaming. It's too because that's a challenge that parents face is that, their son's friends are all online all the time. And so, you know, if you can kind of even get together with, you know, your son's friends, families, and try to figure out, you know, what things can we do to encourage our boys to, um, you know, play basketball outside, to, you know, do some kind of, you know, other sort of activities, you know, outside would be, would be definitely valuable. And then I think encouraging sons, too, to be involved in, in organized sports as well as just one way to kind of get outside and get that exercise that's so good for us, you know, in terms of our emotional well-being, but also in terms of kind of like, I think, you know, there's a way in which the more that our sons exercise, the more prepared they are to actually get homework done as well. I do think that parent, the parental con- collusion is so important and key by, you know, finding your kids, friends, parents, and getting together to say, okay, we're going to keep the genie in the bottle on social media or gaming or whatever. Um, there's a website called Wait Until Eighth, which is excellent in terms of giving ideas for how parents can get together and um, decide 
side together so that your kid is not the only one who's left out. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you for going through interesting information from from the survey and and thank you for your good ideas. I especially like your thoughts on the on the internet because uh, I agree that it's true that um, we have to find new ways uh, to 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 get to get a hold of that problem. All of us as Americans. Yeah, well, thanks, Crazy and Maureen, for having me on today. Um, I appreciate the chance to speak with you guys. For more information on Dr. Brad Wilcox's work, please go to familystudies.org. Super interesting stuff, right, uh, Maureen? Because it does, it, I mean, it does sort of give you a snapshot of where people's heads are now after a couple years of COVID. Definitely, we're, we've all been we've all been shook up. It does. Every, I mean, the disruption has been incredible on so many different levels. So it was interesting to see kind of some things held steady through the pandemic, other things not. But um, it's always interesting to hear from him. He's such a great uh, sociologist and has so many insights on the family. You know, uh, there was some news uh, this this week, we have a new Vatican ambassador. I thought we could talk right. about that for a moment because it's a, it's rather a big deal. Well, it is, and this is always a rather sticky situation diplomatically when you have a democratic administration that is pro-abortion and particularly sticky if you have a Democrat who also professes to be a devout Catholic because there are not too many people left in the Democratic Party who are pro-life, but the Vatican will not receive an ambassador from the United States who is not pro-life. So it's... Maureen, explain that to me. How, how do they not receive him? They, they say this, this ambassador is not pro-life, we won't take him? I think they back channel ahead of time mm-hmm. that they will only accept and receive an ambassador. But it's a firm. Is. It's a firm no. We won't do it. I believe so. Wow. I believe that's, I that's mean, nice. That's how the story is told anyway, that it's a firm no, that the Vatican will only um, accept an ambassador who is pro-life, which is wonderful. That's wonderful. So it's just always an interesting search within the Democratic party to find a person of stature who is pro-life. And just this past week, it was announced that former Senator Joe Donnelly of Indiana is has received the appointment. He'll have to be confirmed. But, but I think it was a good pick. I really do. He Senator Donnelly was a congressman for maybe perhaps just one term. He represented the congressional district that includes the University of Notre Dame. His wife, Jill, is somebody I know. She works at the University. University of Notre Dame. She's actually retired now, I think, but was a longtime employee at the University of Notre Dame. So so Joe and Jill Donnelly are sort of well-known in Catholic circles. Senator Donnelly uh, did maintain a largely pro-life voting record in the Senate. Perhaps it was not perfect, but it was pretty darn good. So I have to say, I think it's a great pick, and I think he will do an excellent job as ambassador to the Vatican. That's good to know, because we haven't had a lot of positives out of this administration on the Catholic side, have we? Well, he's got a very tough job because of the many policy contradictions that he's going to have to deal with. So I don't, I mean, he's got a lot to navigate. It's a terrible look on such a fundamental issue to our faith and such a fundamental human rights issue to have an administration that is so actively promoting and and, abortion, but not just in the United States, but around the world. There is serious cultural imperialism going on around the world through our foreign aid, pressuring foreign governments to liberalize their abortion policies. So it, it's not just a domestic problem, it is an international problem. And and it is, it's a very interesting diplomatic situation. And I'm sure Senator Donnelly, who will soon likely be confirmed as Ambassador Donnelly, I'm sure he'll find many areas to, you know, areas of common ground to work on things like human trafficking and such. But it will be a sticky walk for him. It will be, there will be landmines all over the place, I think, for him. Um, But I just think personally, he's a good guy and he'll do his best to navigate those landmines. Well, we should pray for him and we should pray that uh, that the United States under its current iteration, its current administration and the Vatican can find lots of good things to work on together to promote Catholic social teaching, at least in the the ways that that they can agree, which is not the life issue. And hopefully Senator Donnelly will be able to have some frank conversations with the president. The 
Holy Father, of course, has been very clear on the abortion issue and the the tragedy of abortion and what a violation it is of human rights. So hopefully Senator Donnelly and President Biden, who have a lot in common to Irish Catholics of similar background, I, I think we can hope that Senator Donnelly will have some frank conversations with President Biden. I don't know if I'm terribly hopeful it would lead to a change of heart, but we can always pray, as you said. Well, miracles happen, so we keep praying for them. And thank you, Maureen, for joining me this week on Conversations with Consequences. I love my co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. Good to talk with you today, Gracie. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. When we will eavesdrop on the dialogue Jesus has with the Apostles James and John, and then with all of the other Apostles on the subject of ambition. The brothers James and John, with great chutzpah, asked Jesus for a blank check. Teacher, they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus indulges them, asking, what do you wish for me to do for you? And they reply, Grant that in your glory we may sit one at your right and the other at your left. The two fishermen wanted to be the Messiah's right and left-hand men, his two viceroys or executive vice presidents, what they anticipated would be Jesus' glorious messianic reign. But Jesus responded, You do not know what you're asking, and then gave them yet another indication of the expectation-shattering type of kingdom he was establishing. Can you drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He asked, alluding to the cup of suffering prophesied by Isaiah and the cleansing ablution of blood that would take place on Good Friday. To his question, the brothers impetuously respond, We can. Jesus foretold that they ultimately would, but reminded them that God the Father had already prepared those who would sit on his right and his left, which would be the good and bad thief on Calvary, the sheep and the goats at the general judgment, and likely, dynamically, Mary and Joseph in heaven. Hearing this conversation, however, the other ten apostles objected and became angry at James and John, not because of the brothers' impudence, but out of their own jealousy. They themselves wanted the positions that the brothers had the guts to ask for. Their anger gave Jesus the opportunity to give one of the most important instructions to the apostle and to the whole church about the path to greatness, about the means to become like him, about the way to reign with him and advance his kingdom. We need to focus carefully and persistently on what Jesus says, because it goes so much against our worldly ways. Four weeks ago, you may recall, we had an opportunity to focus on ambition and the path to greatness in God's kingdom, because the theme was so common in St. Mark's Gospel, because the apostles were so obsessed about which one of them would be the greatest, and their voracious egocentric hunger came to the surface at least four times, all disgustingly when Jesus spoke about how he would suffer, be betrayed, and crucified to establish his kingdom. We spoke then about how Jesus didn't seek to suppress their ambition, but to reorient it, pushing them to become great in faith, great in humility, great in holiness, great in knowing and transmitting the faith by word and example, and great in sacrificial love. This Sunday, we focus with Jesus on that last Christian ambition. Jesus tells the apostles, You know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones make their authority over them felt. It's still the same way today. Greatness is determined by how much one how much power one wields in politics, how much money or influence one has in business, how many magazine covers and Twitter followers one has in entertainment. Greatness is determined by the capacity to command or lead others from above. Jesus says that in his kingdom it can't be that way. Whoever wishes to be great among you, he states emphatically, will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. In his kingdom, those who are great would lead and love from below, from serving, sacrificing, even dying for others. Then he gives the reason. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was calling them not to lord it over others, but under others. To be great, in other words, would come not principally through sharing Christ's power, but by sharing his love. Jesus would put these words about serving others rather than being served into action during the celebration of the Last Supper on the night he was betrayed, when he stood up, took off his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist, began to wash the filth off his disciples' feet, a menial task normally done by servants and slaves. The apostles naturally resisted Jesus debasing himself in this way. After he was finished, Jesus said, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for indeed I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
Real greatness in Christ's kingdom would not be determined by fighting for seats at table, but by fighting for the towel. The highest would not be the one to whom others would lift glasses and toasts, but the one who would be able to drink the cup of Christ's blood and in turn say to others with Christ, This is my blood shed for you. Christ's cabinet would be filled not by those who would kiss his butt, but those who would put their own butts in the line for him and others, but being baptized into his death through their own suffering and death. The greatness to which Jesus wants us to aspire, therefore, has nothing to do with any type of terrestrial pecking order. Real greatness, he described, is to become most like him, to share his greatness, his holiness, his total self-giving love. Twenty times in the gospel, Jesus told his disciples, follow me. And in this Sunday's gospel, Jesus was telling us that the path to greatness is to do what he himself was doing. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. St. Paul would later to describe to the Philippians that Christ's example was the stairway to heaven when he called on us to imitate it. Do nothing, he wrote, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. This self-abasing, loving service is the root of Christ's greatness. John and James and the other apostles were chosen by Jesus because even though at first they had very human and selfish desires and motivations. They were capable of conversion so that Jesus' categories would eventually become their own. Once they saw the fullness of Jesus' teaching and his suffering, death, and resurrection on Good Friday, they experienced a real metamorphosis, a total transformation of their worldly ambition into Christ-like ambition. They saw that the path to prominence was not lined with glitter but thorns. This is obviously not an easy conversion, but 11 of the 12 of them eventually made it. They drank Christ's cup, they were baptized into his death, and now they are seated at his side in heaven. The Lord Jesus wants all of us to undergo the same transformation. He wants all of us to desire true greatness, to trade in our false notions that real greatness means we have butlers and valets, chauffeurs and private pilots, and a whole staff of people at our beck and call, to a notion that the greater we are, the more we will, in fact, be serving others. But having the intellectual notion isn't enough. Jesus wants to give us the help he knows we need to make the choice to follow him on this path to greatness. This is the way that after the resurrection, the apostles chose. This is the way that the saints choose. When St. Gregory the Great, for example, Pope from 590 to 604, signed his letters, unlike previous popes who used the expressions Vicar of Christ or Bishop of Rome or Pontifex Maximus, literally the greatest bridge builder between heaven and earth, or the successor of St. Peter, Gregory signed his letters Gregorius Servus Servorum Dei, Gregory, the servant to the servants of God. And he earned that title giving all he had in service to Christ's flock, each of whom is called to be God's servant. For Gregory, the church hierarchy was founded by the Lord to be a lowerarchy, to be a ladder of service. The same goes for every hierarchy. Those who have been invested by the Lord with greater responsibilities, whether in the domestic church of the home, the parish, the diocese, the workplace, the school, are called by the Lord to serve the rest and help them learn to serve others. They're never called to lord it over others, but to love others as Christ loved them, serving them in the same self-giving way with which the Lord has served us all. For Christ, the terrain is not to be served, but to serve, to give one's life in exchange for others. Anyone who wishes to reign with Christ must do likewise. All of us, as did Gregory, are called to become servants of all the servants of God. And this will be the means by which others after us, and most importantly the Lord, will call us great, just like we call Gregory. The greatest means Jesus gives us to become great occurs at Mass. When he humbly bent down at the beginning of the Last Supper to wash his followers' feet, he was just getting started. Later he would abase himself further, changing bread and wine into his body and blood so that we as servants could consume him and live off him. This is the chalice he places before us to drink, to which he hopes we will respond with as much trust and zeal as John and James did. Jesus, in giving himself in ransom for us in the Eucharist, wants us to make that type of love the path of our life. He simplifies everything he's taught us about the path to true greatness in the words he will say to us again on Sunday. Do this in memory of me. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 